Good morning. It's great to be here and to uh, finally make my way out here to, <clears throat> excuse me, Summit Bible Church. Um, I've uh, uh, had a hand in being able to see this this church planted out here and being able been praying for you, for all of you, and uh, it's finally. Uh, it's exciting to finally be able to be out here and to join you and to see just the work of God in your midst. And we hear about you often and, and pray for you much. So I just want to bring a greeting from Foothill Bible Church to, to you all here and say, uh, we love you, we pray for you often, and thank God for you here in, uh, in Fontana. Um, so yeah, as Thomas said, uh, my name is Micah. Uh, it's my wife here, Audrey. Uh, we just had our first child, little daughter, Evelyn. And, um, and so uh, we've been been thrilled to learn the, the joys of parenthood, as uh, Chris was, <laughs> was talking about a little bit. And uh, so we're just thanking God for, uh, for that. And I counted a privilege to be able to be here amongst you today, and, to, uh, and I counted a privilege to be able to, to minister the word to you as your pastor receives a, a much-needed uh, break and rest. And I, I pray that his, uh, him and Allie uh, truly do uh, come back refreshed. So... Well, if you guys would, open up your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 is where we'll be this morning. You know, every once in a while, Hollywood comes out with another movie about alternate realities. And by alternate realities, I'm referring to those movies that play with the idea that this life that we're living in now is not real life. There's actually some other real life, some other alternate reality that's going on, and we're all duped into believing that this is real life. And uh, the, the movie that's really stuck with me in that reality is the movie called The Matrix. And I don't know how many of you guys have seen that, uh, but in that film, everyone thinks they're living in the real world. But the reality is they're living in The Matrix. It's this world controlled by computers, and, uh, and the real humans are um, in another place. And, uh, and so part of the movie is they're trying to wake people up to realize that they're not actually in the real world, trying to help them to realize you're in the matrix, you're not actually in real life, this isn't the ultimate reality. And I think in some sense that provides an illustration for us as we live our Christian life in this world. That is, we can be deceived into thinking that what's directly here, physical, directly in front of us, is the ultimate reality. We can think that this life is all there is. And we live in an age in which secularism and naturalism is the pervading thought of the day. And by that I mean that they are trying to convince us that only those things which are observable and can be touched and felt and experimented on are the real things, and there's nothing outside of that. In essence, they create a, a box, and all physicality goes inside that box, and anything that might be spiritual, or anything that might be supernatural doesn't fit within that box. And that gets, gets communicated to us in, uh, through our government, through our schools, through our entertainment and our media. We're bombarded with this idea that the ultimate reality is only what we can see directly in front of us. And so they begin to look at people who read the Bible, people who go to Bible studies, as religious fanatics, 
as the strange people out on the fringe who aren't quite in connection with reality. They're kind of loopy. They need a crutch. They need something to depend on, and, and they're not really hooked into what's real. And so they, they push, push us off as not serious thinkers, and we're not intellectual because we reject their view of life. And slowly but surely, we as Christians can get lulled into this thinking as well. We can go day in and day out and just begin to think that our life consists of three meals, head off to work, take the kids to school, pick them up, go to soccer practice, come home, eat dinner, do homework, spend some time in front of the TV, and then we go to bed and we do it all over again. And our life is just directly what's in front of us, simply what we can see, touch, and feel. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is the message to the universe that there is something outside of beyond what we can just see in front of us. It's trying to open our eyes to see the ultimate reality. We're saying to everyone, the matrix, matrix isn't all there is. There's something else that's there. And so for those of us that follow Jesus, our eyes have been opened to the ultimate reality, the fact that God is the sovereign creator of this universe and that he is the one who's in control of all things. And so we who have believed can begin to drink this reality and, and, and we can even get pulled into this, this thinking uh, and, and, our, and our perception of the ultimate reality, our perception of what's truly real can get blurred, can get fuzzy, and we aren't as, as stark to the realities of Christ. And this is why we need the Bible. This is why we need the Scriptures. We need to have our eyes awakened on a regular basis to what is truly real, what is truly ultimate. It's, it's, it functions as like a holy coffee, if you will, to kind of awaken our brains to what's, what's here in this life. Money's not ultimate. Family isn't ultimate. Work isn't ultimate. Politics isn't ultimate. Romance and sex isn't ultimate. Jesus is ultimate. Amen. He is the foundation of reality. He is the creator of reality. He is the sustainer of reality. There is no reality apart from him. And the Bible, the scriptures remind us of that. And our passage particularly is going to help us clear our minds and begin to see that in stark reality. And so let's read this passage here together to get us a touch with reality. So if you would, follow along as I read in Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to read just the first two verses. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, from a simple reading of those verses, we can see that the primary exhortation, the primary command for us is to run. 
It's right there, the last phrase of verse 1, let us run with endurance. It's a command. It's a present tense verb, which means that we're to be continually running. In other words, he doesn't say just run for one period of time. He says continually keep on running. Don't give up. And so God's call to you this morning is to run. It's to run the race that's set before you. And so the simple truth is that every believer is running a race. If you follow Jesus, if you've trusted him for your salvation, then you're on the track. Then you're taking strides. Some of you may have have slowed down to a walk. Some of you may be standing on the track. Some of you might be sprinting hard. But if you're a believer, you're on the track this morning. And the author of Hebrews uses this great metaphor to help us to see the realities of of the Christian life. And so as we think about our race, and as you think about your race, the race that you're running, you need to ask yourself, Will you finish the race? What is it going to take for you to actually cross that finish line? What is it going to take for you to be faithful to Jesus Christ all the way to the end? And my goal this morning is to help you guys win this race. I want to see you cross the finish line. I want to see you cling to Christ all the way to the end and you can greet him on the other side of the finish line. And so, this morning, we're going to look at four components of, for running a winning race. Four components for running a winning race. And the first component that we're going to see is to run with unwavering endurance. To run with unwavering endurance. Let's start by looking at that last phrase in verse 1 the one I referenced earlier. This is the key phrase of the verse, and he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This idea of endurance comes from a Greek word which means means to remain under or bearing patiently underneath something. And so it remains, it refers to remaining underneath circumstances that are hard, that are difficult. To, to endure is to, is to have the pressure of life, to have the pressure of suffering on you, and to, you to, to not weasel out from underneath it, but to stay there bearing it. And continue to push through the trial, not seeking to get around it. It's intentionally remaining steadfast and submitting your will to the trial when our natural tendency is to rebel, to get out of the way. And this idea of endurance, it really flows out of an understanding of the sovereignty of God. Because for us to endure, for us to to stay under the difficulty of a trial, we need to realize that that trial is placed there by the hand of a loving God. If this was simply the result of a cosmic accident where where the stars got misaligned and all of a sudden this accident showed up, we'd be super frustrated, right? But if we know that these trials and this suffering is used as a tool in the hand of our Father to mold us and shape us into the image of Jesus, not as a sledgehammer to crush us, then we we can wait it out. 
We can patiently bear under it. And so we're called to run with this endurance, to stick it out, to be faithful. Now, there's a reason why the author of Hebrews here calls his readers to endure. And here's what we're going to look at a little bit of context of this passage. Where, where does this passage come from in the context? The book of Hebrews was written to, as the name suggests, a group of Hebrew Christians, those who are Jewish ethnically and have convert, converted to Jesus as their only way of salvation, rather than trusting in the ways of Judaism. But they are being persecuted. They are ethnic Jews, and so they have family relations. They've got friendships, and they're constantly being tempted and being uh, pushed to return back to Judaism. And they're beginning to think about it. They're beginning to think, hmm, maybe Judaism does have some good things for us. Maybe we should uh, follow Christ and also all of the rules of the Old Testament. Maybe we should do that. And so the author of Hebrews is writing it in a desperate plea. They say, guys, don't turn back from Christ. Don't go back to Judaism. Don't go back to those old ways. Jesus is better. Jesus is, in fact, the fulfillment of what all those Old Testament laws were pointing to. And so if you turn back from Jesus now, you're actually turning away from the God who set up all those rules in the first place. He's saying, don't fall away from the living God. And we'll see an example of this in Hebrews chapter 10. So if you could flip back two chapters to chapter 10. And we'll just see an example of this, of this call of the author to these Hebrew Christians. And uh, pick up in verse 32, Hebrews 10, verse 32. He says, But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that your, you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Stop right there. So you guys see the condition these people are in. They're being publicly mistreated. They're being persecuted for their faith. And at, the, at one point, they accepted it joyfully. They had their perspective correct. They saw that Jesus was better and they didn't care what their neighbors did to them. They didn't care what their friends did to them. They knew they had a better possession and one that was going to last. And so they endured it. They stuck it out. But look at what the author then says in verse 35. He says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. 
in light of the affliction that they were experiencing, the author says, you need to endure. You have need of endurance. And this is the same people that he's speaking to in Hebrews 12, verse 1. You can flip back there with me. Chapter 12, verse 1. These people are in the same position. They experience persecution. They're continuing to receive it. And they have need of endurance. They have need to press on and not give up. And in the same way, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 finds us in the same position this morning. You and I have need of endurance. You and I need to press on. Now, we may not be receiving the same kind of persecution and the same kind of suffering that the people in the book of Hebrews received. But we just as much need to run our race with endurance. We need to have the same mentality that we're going to stick it out to the end. That we're not going to get off the track. We're going to keep running the race. It's always too soon to quit. And whether you think you have 40 more years of running this race, or you've got four more years, you have need of endurance. You've got one more stride, one more step, and we all need to stick it out. Now, this idea of endurance can seem like a big concept, concept and we go, okay, yeah, I, I'm going to run with endurance. We've got to put a stamp over our life and say, endurance, me. But, um, you know, endurance really plays itself out in the little small moments of life. We choose to endure in little small ways. It's a thousand little decisions. I mean, think about the runner. They're sprinting around the track. And every stride produces a new excuse to stop, right? The legs are screaming at them, why are you putting me through this? Okay, your lungs are gasping for air. There's, it looks like there's other people ahead of them. They might want to, you know, I'm not going to win anyway. I might as well give up. And so the, each stride, there's, there's new excuses to pull us off and thus a new opportunity to reinforce the endurance. And the same is true for us. Each day, each decision, each situation that we're in provides a new opportunity for you to confirm your endurance, to say, yes. Right now, today, I'm following Christ. No, I'm not going to choose to sin there. I'm going to continue to follow Jesus. No, I'm not going to, to go the way of the crowd here. I'm going to follow Jesus. It's every little decision that will cause us to make it to the end. And we need to take it one step at a time. So you need to identify, what are the threats for you? What are the little excuses that are popping up in your mind to not run as vigorously? Or to maybe to give up completely? What are the little voices whispering in your ear that are saying, ah, you don't really need to run after Christ that hard? Oh, you don't really need to, to run that steadily. Identify those threats and renew your endurance to follow after Jesus. And so, the first component that we can see in this passage for running a winning race is to run with unwavering endurance. The second thing. The second component is to run with unrelenting encouragement. To run with unrelenting encouragement. And this is really to open up our ears and to realize the encouragement that's already there. Let's look at the start of, of verse 1. It says, therefore, 
since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. If we're going to run our race successfully, we need to find out who these witnesses are. And we need to begin to open up our eyes and ears to see these witnesses. They are uh, exactly that. They are witnesses. They are witnessing to something. They are witnessing to God. And we'll, we'll look into that in just a moment. But notice that it says there's so great a cloud of witnesses. This, is, this idea that you can't even count them. There's just so many. They're just, they're just this huge mass of people. And it says, notice that they surround us. This great cloud of witnesses surrounds us. And the illustration here is great with the idea of an, of an athletic arena. Maybe you watched the Summer Olympics and you've, you've seen those huge stadiums where the, the track runners are, are running down on the track and the stands are just filled with people. And in that same way, figuratively, the author here is saying that these witnesses are all around us. We're running our race and these witnesses are surrounding us and they're witnessing to something. They're crying out to us. And so we need to figure out what it is they're witnessing about. What is it that this crowd of people all around us here today are crying out to us? What do we need to open our ear to hear? And I think the most immediate identification of these witnesses is the chapter just before this. Hebrews chapter 11. Known as the great hall of faith. Because the word faith is mentioned over 20 times in that chapter as it recounts person after person through the Old Testament who lived their life faithfully before God and they did it in faith. Their lives stand as an example to faith in God. And, and as people who live their lives in faith, it shows that they live their lives and did things that weren't necessarily humanly possible or that didn't make sense from a human perspective. It doesn't make sense to build a big boat when you've never seen rain, much less a flood, and yet that's what Noah did. It doesn't make sense that an old woman would have a baby or that that baby must be sacrificed later in life, and yet that's exactly what Sarah and Abraham went through. They didn't live for the approval of men or what felt good at the moment. They understood that they were looking forward to something better. And it's this belief in the unseen realities, it's this belief in the ultimate reality that speaks to us today. Look with me at Hebrews 11 verse 4. There's a key phrase in here that I think helps us to realize how these witnesses speak to us. 11 verse 4, he, he, he's starting by speaking of Abel, and he says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Abel's voice is coming loud and clear to us today, as well as Noah's and Abraham's and Joseph, and Moses. They're speaking to us, even though they've died. 
They're all saying with one accord, they're saying, put your faith in God. Believe in Him. He is trustworthy. He keeps His promises and you will not be disappointed if you bank everything on Him. Don't give up. Keep running. He's worth it. They're saying, it may not make sense right now, but if you believe and you continue to press on, when you receive the reward, it'll all make sense and it'll be worth everything that you've sacrificed. These people are speaking to you. Listen to them. We didn't invent this faith thing here. This faith thing has been around for a long time. God has called his people of all time to believe on him. I think this, the way that Hebrews 12.1 points us back to Hebrews 11 is a good reminder for us that today, as Christians, we can tend to spend a lot of time in the New Testament. But the author of Hebrews is saying, hey, look back to the old and be encouraged to run your race. So let this be a reminder to you this morning to spend some time in the Old Testament and let their faith scream at you as you read. Hear of the way that they ran their race and let it encourage you to run yours. And of course, since this letter has been written, there are now myriads of people who uh, comprise church history. Those who have run their race ahead of us. And they are, have crossed the finish line in their time, and in their place, and in their way. And the Christian biographies, the Christian history, is a great way to be encouraged in our race as well. In essence, they've joined the witnesses in the stands, and they're crying out to us to run our race faithfully. So I encourage you, read Christian biography. Read the stories of those who have lived for Christ in the ages past. And you will be encouraged to run your race today. I can, I can say that from experience. I just can't get enough of hearing of those who have run before us and who have, who have committed themselves faithfully to Christ. It just encourages me every day to get up and go, I am now the, the one carrying the baton in this generation. And we can be faithful just as they were in their generation. So, there is so much encouragement from looking to those who have gone before us. You're not alone. You're not the first person to run this race. Don't be discouraged if you feel like you're alone on the track, because you're not. Read the stories of those who have gone before and be encouraged, because it's constantly there for you, unrelenting, screaming at you to press on. So if we want to run a winning race, then we need to run with unwavering endurance. And secondly, with unrelenting encouragement. Thirdly, we need to run with unmitigated repentance. We need to run with unmitigated repentance. Let's look at what the author says next, the next phrase. He just talked about the cloud of witnesses. He then says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. His next exhortation to us is that we need to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. I always find it ironic how we as um, non-athletes end up watching and are fascinated with the Olympics. Um, 
we are so astounded by the great feats of humankind as they, as they can do some amazing things. And we sit there sometimes in the middle of the night to catch a certain event with our Mountain Dew and Doritos stuff in our face going, wow, that's amazing. I wish I could do that. Meanwhile, it's clear that we've got a different agenda than the people running that race. The people running the 100-meter dash haven't spent many nights in the middle of the night eating Doritos and Mountain Dew uh, to get to where they're at. They've got a different agenda. And it's very clear that those who compete have different concerns than those who don't compete. And this is where the author is trying to open our eyes and help us to realize that we're competing. Therefore, we have certain concerns. We have certain things about our lives that we need to take care of because we're running this race. And when, we, when the runner is competing, is, is gearing up for a race, they've got to change so many things. They've got, some of you guys may have run half marathons or marathons, and, and, and you know the way that, that that kind of commitment narrows and limits you. You can limit what you eat. Your diet changes. You limit what you can wear. You're not going to wear a parka out, on the, out running your marathon, right? You've you got to change how you live and, and, and what you wear. You think more about how much you're sleeping and, and, and your energy. And so the point is that everything that hinders has got to go. Because if you want to win, if you want to get out there and compete in a serious way, if anything's hindering you, you've got to go. The baggy and impeding clothing has to go. Foods that will keep the body from operating at maximum potential needs to go. Krispy Kremes are out, right? Probably in and out, unfortunately. Um, and other activities that might cause injury, right? Bungee jumping may not be the best thing for you if you're looking to run a marathon next, right? Um, you, you have your sights set on the goal. His life is determined by the race. And this is what the author of Hebrews want, wants us to see here. Our lives are determined by our race. And so the hindrances that we need to get out of the way, the weights that we need to throw off, the author says, is, is every weight and it's sin that clings so closely. Now this verb to lay aside is used in other passages of the New Testament. Um, particularly, you guys might know the, the put off and put on passages of, of Ephesians 4. And it's a real vivid verb. It's, it's the idea of actually taking off a jacket and, lay, and putting it aside. It's that, and so when we read that we're supposed to be laying aside every weight and sin that clings closely, it's a very vivid portrait that, that the sin that's in our lives, we, we're not just supposed to be working on putting it off. We're not to be like kind of unzipping the zipper. Okay? We're not just taking one arm off and leaving one arm on. We're supposed to be taking it off and putting it aside. It's unmitigated repentance. The biblical concept for turning from sin and for putting sin aside is this concept of repentance. It's the idea of changing direction. That we, we've been going one way and now we're turning and going another way. We're, we're turning away from our sin and we're turning towards God. And the author says, don't let anything be dragging you behind, be pulling you back the other direction. Now, all of us in our lives have things that are weighing us down. We come here this morning as a community of broken people, right? We, we all have things that we have in our past that still have consequences today in, in how we run our race. We have things that we've just, sins we've just committed this week. That are, that are towing us down and weighing on our hearts even now. And so 
There are, are things that are clearly in our lives that we need to be laying aside. And Scripture is pretty clear about, about some things, right, that are, that, are, that are explicitly wrong that we need to be putting out of our lives. Robbery, sexual morality, lying. These sorts of things are very clearly wrong and must be repented of and laid aside. And let me just say that if you're fostering something in your life, you're allowing sin to continue in your life that you know is wrong and explicitly goes against the Word of God. By the authority of the Word of God, let me call you just to repent this morning. Don't hang on to it any longer. Don't foster it. Don't continue to give yourself excuses for why you can keep it on. Obey the Word of God and lay it aside. Find the freedom that's in Christ and in the gospel. And if you feel like you're entangled in these cords of sin, this, this sin which clings so closely, don't try to fight it on your own. That's what the church is here for. I tell my students in the youth ministry all the time, a lone ranger is a dead ranger. Don't try to fight this battle on your own. Don't try to fight this in your own power and your own strength. Cry out for help. Talk to the people in your church and your small group. And bring the community of faith to help you to lay aside this sin. It's not something to play around with. It's something to cast aside. Now, apart from these explicitly uh, sinful actions, there's also other things in our lives that may not be explicitly labeled as sin and yet might be wrong for us to do. And this is where it takes some discretion and some, some guiding of the Holy Spirit uh, with Scripture. Because... Some things that might be wrong for one person may not be wrong for the other person. And that's where we each need to examine our own hearts. We need to ask, what is it that's keeping me? What is the weight that's pulling me down, that's keeping me from running hard after Jesus? Maybe it's your entertainment. Maybe you're craving for, for the TV shows or the movies or the internet or Facebook. Maybe it's, maybe it's your addiction to your smartphone. I don't know what it is for you. But there's these things in our lives that aren't explicitly wrong. The Bible doesn't say Facebook is wrong. But if it's got a hold on our heart and it's keeping us from pursuing Jesus, then it's wrong for us. And it could be our, our friends. We go, well, friends aren't condemned in Scripture. But are they helping you pursue Christ? The question you have to ask yourself is what kind of hold do these things have on your heart? Because that's the key thing. It's, it's our heart. It's the allegiance of our soul. The Christian is allowed to do a lot of things, but we need to ask ourselves, is it profitable for us? Is it helping us pursue Jesus? And you need to realize that the enemy is looking to get you off course in any way he can. Listen to what this, how this one author puts it. He, how he talks about using seemingly innocent things to get us off course. He says, The great enemy of our souls, Satan, does not care much what it is that keeps us from running our Christian course if we are but kept from running it. And when he can so far delude us as to make us believe that we are running that course when we are either standing still or proceeding in another direction, he considers his object as gained in the best possible way. 
The enemy wanted to deceive you to think, oh, yeah, you're running your race. Good job, Christian. But really, he's pulling your heart off to the side. So I just ask you, are you, are you been giving yourself excuses for these things in your life that have a hold on your heart? Only you can answer these things. You need to examine your heart. And so, our repentance cannot stop at any point. We can't say, oh, I've repented enough. Oh, I've laid aside all my weights now. Now I'm free to go for the rest of my life with no more things to lay aside. No. No, we, as we said, we're broken people. We fail every day. We need to be about repenting all of the time. This verb is a continual, is a present verb. It's a continual uh, action. We're to be laying aside every day. We see it in our life and go, Lord, I'm sorry. And we, we throw it off and we continue to run. This repentance is to be unmitigated. Well, lastly, let's look at the fourth component for running a winning race. The fourth component for running a winning race is to run with undivided devotion. To run with undivided devotion. And let's, let's look together at verse 2. So he, said, he says to run the race with endurance. And then verse 2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now this last component is arguably most important. The author gives a whole verse to this reality. And this is really the fundamental calling of all who claim the name of Jesus, is that we look to Christ. We must be looking to him constantly. This is the primary occupation of our lives is to fix our eyes on Jesus. The verb here of looking to Jesus is this idea of of looking away from yourself to to trustingly fix one's eyes on something or something. It's this locking gaze. And the author here continues this racing metaphor Picturing the runner who's, who's out there on the track and giving his everything and his, his, his gaze is unmoved from the end of the track. His eyes are set on the finish line. And he's not looking to those around him. He's not looking to the side. He's simply running his stride after stride with his eyes locked on what's in front of him. Other things cry out for him, his own fatigue, other people who have stopped running or people who have slowed down. But from beginning to end, his view is set. Now, we know that Christ can't be visibly seen today. And so we need to ask ourselves, well, what does it mean for us today to look to Jesus? What does it mean for us to look when our physical eyes can't actually see him? And I think um, a few verses in 1 Peter are going to help us. So let's flip to the right a little bit to go to 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1 is going to give us some insight into what this looking to Jesus is. First Peter 1, a look in verse 8 and 9. Peter writes, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. In him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, 
obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter here is speaking to people, as uh, we heard in the scripture reading this morning, to people who are in a similar position as the people in Hebrews. They're being persecuted and they're being tempted to, to give up. And Peter here is encouraging them to stick it out in their trials. And he says that even though you don't see Jesus now, and even though you never actually have seen him in the past, you love him and you believe in him. And I think this is what our looking to Jesus involves here and now for us today. For us to look to Jesus means that we place our faith in him and we love him. It's, it's the, the operation of our mind and of our soul. They're actions of our heart. It's an internal thing, not an external thing. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God, describes it as the gaze of the soul. The eyes of our heart are, are looking on what cannot be seen with our physical eyes. Yes, we live in a world that we can see and we can touch, but our faith looks beyond and outside of that to the ultimate reality. And our calling here is to have an undivided devotion to Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to realize that, that looking to Jesus is not a matter of just doing certain religious things. It's not just going to church, reading our Bibles, saying, um, in Jesus' name, amen, at the end of our prayers. It's not putting a picture of Jesus on our wall or dangling a cross in a rearview mirror, as helpful as those things might be. But to fix our eyes on Jesus is to have our hearts completely set on him. There's, there can be room for nothing else. Nothing else can take that singular location of Lord and ultimate treasure in our soul. It's not just that we've surrendered our allegiance to him, it's that all of our delight and all of our love and all of our desire is for him. If we could have nothing else, we get Jesus. That's what we want. That's what our heart should cry. And guys, if we ever lose sight of this, if we ever lose sight of Christ, then we're going to be tempted to get out of the race. We're going to be tempted to give up. We're going, why are we doing this? Why are we putting up with this kind of opposition and this kind of persecution? We want to be able to say with Paul in Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake... I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now let me also say, this looking to Jesus is a constant thing. You can't say, oh, well I've looked to Jesus um, several years ago when uh, a pastor had an altar call and, I, and I, accepted, I accepted Jesus into my heart. So I've looked to Jesus, I'm good to go. Look, this is, this is a, a constant present tense verb. We are constantly looking to Jesus. When you get to heaven and you stand at the gates of heaven and God says, why should I let you into my heaven? An answer that says, well, I chose Jesus X number of years ago. Or I looked to Jesus so many years ago. Doesn't cut it. God is not looking for a past event. He's looking for a present reality. We enter into heaven because we treasure Christ all of our days. 
that we win the race, we've crossed the finish line as all those people of old have. So I ask you, are you treasuring Christ today? Is Jesus the delight of your soul? Do you look to him and cling to him, knowing that your only hope for salvation is from him? Are you undividedly devoted to him? Well, why should we look to Jesus? Our author here in Hebrews gives us three reasons why. First, we're going to see who, because of who he is, because of what he did, and because of where he's gone. Okay, so first, let's see. Uh, we should look to Jesus because of who he is. If you could flip back to Hebrews chapter 12. We're looking to Jesus because of who he is. Look at what it says. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The author here gives us a unique descriptor of who Jesus is. It means the founder and perfecter of our faith means that he is the, the cause, the, the starter and the completion of the faith in which we run. It means we look to him because he's already finished his race. He ran it and crossed the finish line. And he did it perfectly without any sin. Jesus ran his race in perfect faith. And I think that we can tend to, to, to minimize that in Jesus' life. We think, well, Jesus lived his life and he just pulled his God card out whenever it got tough. And <laughs> says, well, it's kind of tough right now. I'm God, so I can get through this just fine. But it didn't work like that. Jesus didn't say that. All through the Gospels, we see that Jesus relied upon his heavenly Father just like you and I do. He was the prime example of someone who lived by faith. He accepted the limitations of humanity, and he lived in faith to his Father. He prayed to his Father. He depended on his Father. He trusted in his Father to sustain him. In John 4, verse 34, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He needed to trust God for his daily food, shelter, and ministry. He was 100% human and exercised faith as we do, but he never doubted. His faith was completely strong all of the time. And we can notice that the, the, the name Jesus is used here. It's not Jesus Christ. It's not the Son of God. He's not emphasizing his, his, uh, his um, being the Son of God or being emphasizing that he is the Messiah. The author of Hebrews here is, ref, is, uh, is emphasizing the fact that Jesus was a man, the man, Jesus, the guy who walked on the earth. And our eyes are focused on him because he is the, the starter, the founder, and the prime example of our faith. So, we, fought, we look to Jesus because of who he is, and we look to Jesus also, secondly, because of what he did. Look at how he goes on. He says, looking to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. We fix our eyes on Jesus because he endured his race, and he makes it possible for us to actually endure ours. Jesus endured the cross. The pain and uncomfortable circumstances that we often go through don't even compare to the unspeakable horror that took place at the cross. 
Crosses were used in that time for punishing people that the Romans deemed for unworthy of a proper death. They, they were for the subhumans. And he was beaten. He was scorned by men. He was betrayed by a close friend. And he was rejected by those he came to set free. And he received one of the most agonizing and painful executions that have ever been invented by men. Now the cross is mentioned here not because it is the only evil that Jesus endured. He received evil all throughout his life. But it's mentioned here because it is the worst evil that Jesus endured. And thus all the other evils that he, he encountered is also understood as well. Now, if you remember back to our definition of endurance, right? Patiently bearing under the circumstances with a view beyond the, the circumstances, then we can see how Jesus endured. We can see why the author here says that Jesus endured the cross. He didn't give up on the cross. In fact, he even prayed, Father, you know, if this isn't your will, take, it, take this cup from me. But it wasn't, he wasn't going to get out. He wasn't going to dodge the cross. He remained under the worst possible persecution, and he did this by submitting his will to his Father's will in the Spirit's power. So we know that he endured, but why? Look at what the text says why he endured. He says it's for the joy that was set before him. Isn't that crazy? In light of all of this that Jesus is going through, it was joy that was on his mind. It was joy that motivated him. It was joy that propelled him through the cross to the reward beyond the suffering. And I think this joy is the understanding that of, of the joy of relationship that he had with his father, that they, the Trinity had before the world began. We saw that in John, we see that in John 17. There is a joy amongst the Godhead that we, we barely get a taste of here. But Jesus understood completely, and he knew the joy of being able to be reunited with his father. And in that, he was going to bring, as the author of Hebrews says in chapter 2, bring many sons to glory. This time, when he was going to experience the joy of the Father, there was going to be a whole lot of people with him. He was bringing a crowd. He was bringing a party. And that joy of, of everyone rejoicing in the salvation that God has provided propelled him on. In light of that joy he did not even take into account the shame that he experienced. The shame that was piled on him. He didn't even blink an eye towards. It meant nothing for him in light of the surpassing greatness of his reward. It says that he despised the shame. It's not just that he ignored it. He hated that shame. He's like, like whatever, I'm, I'm getting rid of that. But we need to recognize he was shamed as if he was the worst sinner. He wasn't just shamed as a guy who did something embarrassing. The scriptures say that he became sin for us. He was shamed as if he was, he was a rapist, as if he was a murderer, 
That kind of despise and hatred was, was looked upon him by the people around him. And he bore all the shame of our sin. And yet he didn't allow that shame to get in the way of what he was called to do, of running his race, of keeping his eye on the goal. So we look to Jesus because of who he is, because of what he's done, and lastly, because of where he's gone. Our text says, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is a a present tense. He's there now. He made it. He didn't give up halfway. He, He reached the final destination. Jesus made it to the finish line. And this concept of Christ finishing his race has two implications. First, as I mentioned, he is the showcase for the perfect runner. He is the example that we all look to for how to run our race. Even though all those witnesses that have gone before have run their races, they ran it imperfectly. But Jesus ran his race perfectly. And that's why we look to him. He showed us how to run a race on earth in such a way that depends on God at all times and yet actively, not passively, endures all things. Listen to him. Listen to the voice of your Savior who's calling out to you. He's saying, run harder. Run faster. Depend on God. Have faith. Don't give up. It's totally worth it. And so we need to look to Jesus' example and run with everything that we've got. But the second implication is that this reference to him being seated at the right hand of the throne of God has specific reference to him as our great high priest. We don't have time to go into this, but the book of Hebrews highlights this big time. And saying that after his death, he went and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God in fulfillment of Psalm 110. And this high priest can sympathize on our behalf. And it's because of this that we should then let the race of Christ be a refuge for us. Because see, not only did Jesus run his race as an example that we're to follow, but he ran his race so that we could follow in his footsteps. Which is exactly what our passage in 1 Peter 2 told us this morning. He ran it so that we could run ours. He is a refuge. He is the great high priest now who sits at the right hand of the throne of God making intercession for us. And as we realize our sin, as we realize our brokenness, as we realize our faltering steps on this race of faith, when we see ourselves, we see the sin that's in our lives and we stumble and we trip and fall and it's not once a month we trip and fall, right? It's it's daily, it's multiple times. Each time we were there on the track, face down, we need to look up and, look and see Christ again and see the cross and see that he took the punishment for our sin, that we will never have to experience the wrath that was due to us. And we need to put our faith in him and run harder, get back up and keep running. So my encouragement to you this morning is, is keep running. Don't let your sin drag you back. Don't let the distractions of this world, all the glittery things that say this is ultimate reality, be reminded the ultimate reality is Jesus. And if you lose sight of that, 
you're going to be tempted to turn off course. In 1952, a young Florence Chadwick stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off Catalina Island, determined to swim to the shore of mainland California. You guys are probably are familiar with Catalina Island. And she had already been the first woman to swim both ways in, of the English Channel. But the weather that day from swimming from Catalina Island to California, it was foggy. It was chilly. And she could hardly see the boats that were around her that were accompanying her. And still, she swam for 15 hours. When she begged to be taken out of the water along the way, her mother in a boat alongside told her she was close and that she could make it. Finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and was pulled out. And it wasn't until she was on the boat that she discovered the shore was less than a half mile away. At a news conference the next day, she said, all I could see was the fog. And not to excuse myself, but I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. And in fact, she did try the feet again later. And this time it was a clear day and she, she could see the shore And she not only made it to the shore, but she actually beat the record at the time. And this story simply illustrates the fact that when we we lose sight of the goal, we lose heart. And we want to give up. Which is why the author here says to look to Jesus. You can keep your gaze set there. Don't let it turn to the right or to the left. If you want to win your race, you've got to keep your heart set with undivided devotion to Jesus Christ. Every day, all the time, never stopping. I hope this text has reminded you of this ultimate reality, that you are running a race. As you guys head home today, as you live your your week out this week, you're running a race. And there's things you need to take off. There's people you need to listen to. There's Christ you need to set your heart onto. And don't let the things of this world, all the distractions that are out there, pull you away from that reality that you're running this race. So let me encourage you guys, don't give up. Don't give up, my friends. Jesus is worth it. And he will give you the strength to take one more stride, one more day. May we be counted among those who don't shrink back in this race of faith, but of those who endure to the end and will one day behold the face of the man to whom we run. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our loving Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you that you have called us, that you have chosen us to be in your family. You have placed us upon the track. You have given us a race to run and given us your spirit to be able to run it. Father, I pray for any who are here who are not running that race, who have not looked to Christ, who do not know the joy of having their sins forgiven. Father, would you open their eyes to this ultimate reality? Would you open their eyes to who Jesus is and may they come in repentance to him? And I pray for all of us, Lord, that we would run our race faithfully this week by your power and by your strength. It's in our Savior's name we pray, amen.